Hi, everybody. Rahul from Med Conversations here. Today, I've got two guests on the podcast for the first time ever, Nitesh Nelika and Adam Brown. These guys are both very uh, experienced researchers, and this is just a little preamble to them. We decided to see what it would be like to get some guests on the podcast and have them talk to you about something. So Nitesh and Adam are experienced researchers who are going to be here to talk to you about research, how to do it, and why you should do it. Um, Nitesh and Adam have both been working with me in research for a long time. I consider them both sort of mentors. And they're helping me run a course in Melbourne that is aimed at teaching young doctors how to do research, which comes under the guise of MedCube seminars, and we're running a research masterclass. So that's going to be in late May, and I figured it would be a good opportunity to get these guys to share some of their knowledge with us on the podcast as well. So let us know what you think of it. Uh, Hopefully the first interview podcast ever goes well, and potentially if you guys like it, we could get more interview guests talking about potentially medical topics or anything else that you might want. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Good evening, everybody, or good morning, depending on where you're listening to. Welcome to another sultry episode of Med Conversations. Good afternoon. Yeah, uh, well, it depends on where you are. Right now it's evening, Nitesh, so we're going to stick with that. Today we've got a very special episode. One, because I'm back from the United States, and I know the fan mail has dropped off on my behalf. There's a couple of you who are sacrilegious enough to say you like Darvor the most out of all of us, which is ludicrous and wrong. If you keep saying that, you'll be banned from the podcast. Um, but also, it's a special episode because I've got two very special guests with me. Private conversation. I've got, I've got yeah, private conversation with my guest guys. Sorry. You listen. Um, I've got two interviewees here uh, who are both senior cardiologists at Monash. Um, senior is a questionable term. They're cardiologists at Monash who are heavily involved in research. And this podcast, as opposed to being teaching you about a medical topic, is going to be more a career-based podcast teaching you about research you know, some of the reasons like why you should maybe think about doing it, what its benefits to you are, and how to potentially go about it as well. So joining me today, I've got Dr. Adam Brown, who has a funny accent. Good Adam, evening. Yeah. And we've got Dr. <laughs> Nitesh Nelika, who some of you may know as the Monash rock star celebrity who's involved in a lot of teaching students and junior doctors. Hello. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity, Rahul. Yeah, no stress. Thanks for coming on. So, yeah, today I think we start off with just talking quickly about your background. So, Adam, why don't you tell us why you have a funny voice that no one likes? I'd like to, well, I'm not sure my voice is funny. My accent may be funny. I'm not sure my voice is funny, but we're probably going to listen back on this. It probably will be funny. But, uh, anyway, so I'm uh, a UK-trained cardiologist. I uh, did my primary medical degree in Cambridge, subsequent on to do a PhD in Cambridge on cardiovascular medicine. Uh, actually really enjoyed it, went on to an academic tr- clinical position there locally and then eventually transferred to being an academic interventional consultant here at Monash Heart. Mm, okay, and uh, research is still a big part of your career still as an academic? Most definitely, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I spend probably about 60% of my working week doing uh, medical research and that's uh, funded at the moment uh, very gratefully through Monash Health. So, and I'm looking to carry that on in the long term. I'm trying to set up my own um, interventional and general research group at Monash Heart. So I'm in that that phase of my career. And Natesh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career? I I do have a funny voice, um, unfortunately. I am actually male, by the way, (laughs) just so it's clear. Um, I, um, I, I, I trained in Australia. I did my training through Monash University and a lot of it through Monash Medical Center as well. Trained in Monash Heart, did some time at the Alfred and Frankston. Did some research along the way, uh, became really interested in it, and I guess we'll touch on that soon, but I'm in the middle or the end of finishing my PhD at the moment. Um, I'm an imaging cardiologist, which means I'm a much more considered and sensible cardiologist than Adam Brown. Um, <laughs> and research 
despite my wife's protestations, are very much becoming a it's very much becoming an important part of my life at the moment. Okay, so I think that's a good point to touch on, which, you know, for a lot of the people listening to this, who I imagine, you know, our demographic tends to be medical students, junior doctors, people who are vaguely interested in the health field. Um, you know, the the question always comes up of, like, is research just a means to an end or is it something that's actually valuable? So why don't you give us a brief story, Adam, say about, like, what your initial opinion of research was, how you got into it, and now how you view it and how, how it affects your career. I think that's fair, and I think most doctors who even end up in a research career, very few of them had dedicated research ambitions as they went through their early career. I I did it as a means to an end at the point. um, When I did my cardiology training in the UK, I was fairly set in being an interventional cardiologist. Um, To get an interventional job within the UK, it is very difficult to achieve that if you do not have a higher degree. It's a not quite an essential on the job description for most NHS jobs, but it's certainly desirable. And if you do not meet the desirable criteria, you're probably not going to get interviewed. So it started as a means to the interventional end for you. Absolutely. And I I identified that pretty quickly within my training. I set out to therefore get some early exposure to research with retrospective work and then try to get myself a more dedicated research or a, a dedicated higher degree. And that, that's part of what you'd expect in UK training. Um, and there's very few interventionists out of thought in the UK employed over the last five or six years who do not have a higher degree. Okay. What about you, Nitesh? How did you do it at the start? I, I imagine it might be a similar story. Now. Very much. Look, like? I would say that 99% of people, particularly in Australia, the UK experience would definitely be different, but in Australia, most people will be doing research as a box-ticking exercise to try and get them onto a training program. And that's quite literal for you the, who are quite early in your career. I mean, literally for your specialty applications these days, there is a bunch of boxes which say, how many papers do you have? And you get X amount of points for it. Yeah, and that was, the same, that was exactly the same in the UK. There was mm. a lot of the Australian mirrors the UK as it was many years ago. Uh, and there is literally a box and you score points on the fact that you have a publication or you have an abstract and you score bonus points if you're first author on those. And it's, it's absolutely becoming more and more necessary because it's a way of differentiating people. Well, that's mm. the problem. It's with increasing amount of medical trainings, and this is how it started in the UK, that there was just... In the 80s, when there was um, not much money in the healthcare service, there was a lot of trainees coming out. There was very few consultancy jobs. And how did those trainees make themselves competitive? Well, what they did is they did research to bolster their CV. That was why they did it. Mm. And that's how research started in the UK. But now it's sort of evolved into being a more prerequisite. And definitely Mm. in Australia, it's going that way. And so I did it. When I did it, it was not a necessary. Um, requirement, but certainly it has now become something that is yeah, not just desirable, it's something that's required. You were kind of an early adopter, and I guess that was probably, you know, maybe you saw the way the water was going in that in that sense, but now... I'm a soothsayer, Raul. So? I'm a soothsayer. You're a soothsayer. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, he'll read your palm for you. Correct. You should see his palms, they're quite hairy. <laughs> because I'm a man. Because he's a man. Um, but now, how do you view research as a part of your career? Yeah, so now it's it's become... It's, big, it's, a, it's a strange thing, research. You start doing it out as a, as a set boxing exercise. You get your first publication. You Google yourself. You PubMed yourself. You see your name appear. And it suddenly becomes this very strangely nerdy, addictive thing to mm-hmm. find out how many times, how many publications you can get. Can you get to page one of two, page one of three? How many citations are you getting? People are reading your work. 
And as, as odd as that might sound, that actually becomes really quite addictive. The only danger of becoming a celebrity like that is you're not going to end up on TMZ. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work for a very nerdy type of celebrity action. But um, now, I guess, you know, you sort of view it as an intrinsic part of your curiosity in cardiology. Absolutely. It's a, it's a way of learning about medicine beyond just the, the dull rigmarole that you go through of clinical work all the time. It allows you to answer new questions, explore new ideas, expand your thinking, learn more about you, especially become a super specialist in a particular area and really be able to deliver clinical care and keep yourself interested. Yeah, so I think one of the experiences that I can relate is when I was over in America, and some of you will know that I was there just doing a research fellowship for a year and now I'm back. Um, One of my supervisors there said to me, I said, why do you do research? Why do you bother with all of this? And he said, but once you've been a consultant for five to 10 years, everything is just pattern recognition and looks the same. And he said, the only way to keep yourself interested in your job, and you know, we've all spent a lot of time picking a job that a lot of people would say be, is, is a very desirable job. But after that much time of being a consultant, going to work is just like any other job where you just pattern recognition, you do the same thing in, day in, day out. And he said, it gets boring. And so you've got a few options there, research, business, a few other things. But really, research is the one that a lot of us move towards because it's what we're inclined to knowledge discovery that sort of thing so i think you know the main point there is that there is this evolution from being a box ticking almost annoyance at the the start of your degree or start of your career to something that actually ends up making your career interesting and salvages your interest in your career and something we're seeing at least in these two guys so um in terms of there's something that i've always found um at least in in my limited experience which is that even just engaging research has exposed me to things outside of research or f- areas that I would have never seen had I just stuck to the clinical rat race. So my personal example is, you know, having gone to American done research, I suddenly met a whole bunch of guys from business and in deep statistics and sort of machine learning and stuff that I never would have seen and, and garnered this interest there and got some opportunities there on that front. Adam, is there anything that, going, I mean, I know you did your some of your PhD with engineering guys. Do you think that you ever would have been exposed to that sort of level of engineering and that different side of knowledge if you had never gone down the research pathway? Uh, without, yeah, without question, the answer is no. There's no way I'd have been exposed to that. <clears throat> and research does give you that. It gives you the opportunity to work with people outside your field because by definition you're pushing boundaries, so you're working with new people all the time. Um, so my research um, transcended medicine, as it were. Uh, did with worked with uh, biomechanical engineers. Did a lot of computational work as a result. Uh, learned skills, computational skills that I still work with today that I would not have had the opportunity to do. Uh, and that therefore forges you your own little niche within medicine as well. And it, it does allow you to stand out from your peers at the most cynical level mm. of just trying to make yourself competitive. But also, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying. It stimulates your interest. It keeps you motivated with, as an individual. And it teaches you so many more skills that are, is, that are difficult to achieve when you're doing a busy clinical yeah, job. That the world is bigger than just... We should establish that re- re- it's not just, you know, research people. Some people associate research with sitting in a laboratory and looking at mm. cells and looking at yeah, looking after mice. I mean, there is basic science research and there's clinical research. We're, we're clinical researchers, Adam yep. and I. Yep. So there is a different level of that. And I guess we can and only even, really speak for the clinical Even beyond that, I mean, you're clinical and then you move into sort of like systems-based research mm. where you get people who look at, you know, health inequities around in mm. the state or healthcare systems and how they're set up. So there's a whole bunch of different areas you can be in and, and thinking that it is just going to be you pipetting some sort of 
uh, material into another test tube is not at all an accurate picture of what research is like, particularly in medicine. I'd say we're lucky on that front. We've got mm-hmm. a whole variety of ways we can... I've never been in a laboratory. Plan never to be in a laboratory. <laughs> yeah, I would have no idea what to do. I have. I don't like mice. You have. I have. It's tough. So do you th- I've heard, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard about the... Yeah. I've heard, it's very it. tough in, yeah. in so many ways. Do you think that you've been exposed... Do you have any stories about perhaps, Nitesh, about how you've been exposed to something that you don't think you would have otherwise seen outside of research? Maybe whether it be business, uh, whether it be you know some sort of technology that you would have seen being exposed to. Even have you met your wife through research? I know you haven't, so I don't know why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I didn't meet my wife through research, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no, so... I mean, a research of a certain kind. A different, different kind of research, yes. Stalking. Stalking. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure we should be selling it so we can meet people. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. No, there's, probably, there's a lot of single people who do research too. Yeah, sure. Most okay, single okay. people okay. do research. <laughs> no, okay. So, no, for, for me, I guess the ability to, um, to work in a collaborative environment and work with new technologies, being an imaging cardiologist, it becomes not just about uh, seeing something and diagnosing it. It's about algorithms and computer innovations that are there to try and better understand and diagnose um, certain conditions, whether it be ischemic heart disease, whether it be cardiac failure, whatever it might be. And, and the ability to collaborate with smarter people around the world, that's the other that thing research gives you. It gives you connections beyond just the clinical yeah. people that you meet in day-to-day life. And on a more basic note, it gives you a chance to go and explore the world. I mean, you get paid. I've been paid by multiple different institutions to go attend a conference in different places with no expense. That, that it by itself, one, you're going to a different place to just explore the city, but also you're going to meet with people from all around the world. Let's talk money just for a second, Raul. I just want to... There's a, there's a... Very point, clear point here, yeah. Like crime, research doesn't pay. Unless you are one of the one in 10 million who is the Al Capone who invents something that you can sell. Al Capone? Of crime. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, okay. Of crime. <laughs> No, Most but, of the time, yeah. you are not earning big if, money. If you want to make so billions of dollars, if you make lots and lots and lots of money and you're a doctor, research is not going to be the key to that in the short term. Yeah. Let's be very clear. It's a tough game. You have to go through funding um, experience, you know, the, the, the painful process of funding and trying to apply for it. Um, and it's not as um, wonderfully remunerative mm. as just doing clinical medicine. So. Yeah. But that being but, said... But I think the important part yeah. there is that, like what I was saying with my supervisor before, is that if you rush through, and at our age, you know, juniors, doctors, medical students, we look at like, oh, man, I can't wait for that consultant pay. Let's say you get it by 31. That's another 40 years of just doing private clinical medicine, making a lot of money, but just doing private clinical medicine day in, day out. But anyway, that's a, that's a small point, and I think it doesn't. It, it's about keeping your life fresh. Um, do you guys have any particularly proud moments about you know what, what, something you look back on in research, whether it's egotistical or not, whether it's short-sighted or not, something that you just look back on and be like, yeah, I'm look, so I, happy. I, 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 I know I pointed to Adam saying you can start, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to interject I, there. Yeah. I had look, a good one. But yeah, okay. Go I'll, I'll just say this. So I case reports. A lot of people out there will be asked to do a yeah. case report, mm. and that may be... You know, that was a groan from Adam. Uh, there's, there's a famous, famous <laughs> cardiologist named Eugene Braunwald who some of you might recognize as being one of the editors of Harrison's, mm. who says that a case report on your CV is actually a negative factor. Yes, I'd hear that. And look, it probably is. But one of my first articles that I ever published happened to be a case report, and it was published in a, a little journal called The Lancet. And, and that was an extremely proud moment for me because obviously it's a very good journal, and um, it was very satisfying to know that something 
ended up in uh, something of quite great prestige. That doesn't mean that the case report is where I suddenly stopped doing research, but if anything, that started, that tantalized your taste buds, if you will. Do you have anything less egotistical, Adam? (laughs) (laughs) He's never published in The Lancet or The New England, so he's actually the junior researcher at the table. (laughs) Um, Yes, I probably could find something just slightly less egotistical than that. Um, I think from my point of view, I think... Um, certainly one of my proudest achievements was the, f- the first time where I think you go from your idea to um, gathering the data, to processing the data, to writing the manuscript, to publishing. Uh, and I think that's when you start to actually get a real hook for it. Mm. Um, so, you know, initially you're often doing your boss's ideas. Somebody comes you an idea, get this data together or, you know, analyse this. Even when you're doing your PhD, you're often just enacting the ideas of your supervisor. But at some point, you'll start to have your own individual ideas. And, you know, trying to take them from your own mind into publication is great because then you're actually getting sort of feedback that what you're thinking about, your independent thoughts are valid and you've taken it through peer review, everyone yeah. thinks that you're valid, and that's a real rewarding experience. And I, totally, I totally hear that. It's a part of your mind, your thought about the world that's getting expressed in a very critiqued and you know, analysed perspective that people then accept as valid, like you yeah. said, well, and you, publish. Yeah, because we all have our own ideas. I'm sure mm. each one of us, when you're doing your working day, you have your own ideas of how things can be done better or how things can be improved. And I don't think within medicine, as it's so hierarchical, that I don't think a lot of those are put into practice. Mm. So research gives you the opportunity to do that, um, at a sp- possibly at a stage maybe earlier than you would otherwise have. I think that's definitely true. I mean, unlike you guys, I'm still junior. I'm still a you know, working as a Gen Med registrar at the moment, um, which is soul destroying. In case anyone was wondering, <laughs> um, and oh, yeah. you know, it feels like all I ever do is either follow a protocol, follow what a specialty registrar is telling me, or follow what my consultant is telling me. It's very little avenue for me in my day to day life after five years of medical training, doing all this stuff, to actually express my creativity, express some of my own thoughts. And this is one way at a junior stage where I can, I've done projects now where I've come up with the idea, developed the research, literature search, done everything, and then published at the end. And it feels good to have yeah. done that. It doesn't, and it doesn't mean that you have to have your own thoughts. That's a very challenging thing to come through. It comes mm. from, it actually comes from reading a lot and experiencing a lot of research before you develop that, that independent thought within mm. research. Because there's a very special way of scientific communication that mm. is very challenging to actually to actually um, develop. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of the philosophical stuff and I think I hope that gives people it sounds very like bright-eyed and sort of you know um, all of us are obviously research inclined sounds like we're painting in a very good light but I think it's true I think once you engage with it that's how how it actually feels and you're hearing it from two guys who are you know slightly different stages of their career but you know accomplish. Um, but let's get into something like more pragmatic. Um, so one of the things, as you guys may know, I spent a bit of time with some variably, variable quality supervisors, variable quality projects that didn't go uh, as, as I would planned. I didn't get what I wanted out of them and didn't feel satisfied at the end. And so for a pragmatic point of view for the people who are listening at home, what do you think makes a good project? How do they pick a good project supervisor combo? That's something they're interested in. You know, how do, why don't you tell us your experience about why you think it didn't go well then? Yeah, so I guess I've worked on a few projects that didn't go well at a very junior stage. The very first one I remember... Can I just stop you there? I think that's not an uncommon experience. Yeah. So I don't think we should be singling you out and saying that that's no. unusual. I think that is the, the default position for the majority of people. Absolutely. And I would, I would put myself in that category. And they may not realise. All of us who have done research have had 
a bad experience with a supervisor yeah, because yeah. everyone thinks they can do research. Yeah, and it's not necessarily true. So, I mean, I started like earlier on. Asshole, in, in, has one, so. <laughs> in medical school, I you know there I had a couple of supervisors who had ideas, um, who maybe they weren't the most thought out ideas. They hadn't didn't have a lot of experience in research, and I got drafted on. Bright eyed medical student, you know, I want to get a good hospital placement. I want to get into a specialty. I want to do some research, and. You know, you guys kind of go in thinking, oh, thank my lucky stars, I'm actually working with someone who's willing to take me under their wing. And it's only, you know, some of the projects have been 40, 100 hours in, 200 hours in, and that far in I realized, oh, this project actually, it's not a good project. It's not a great idea. It's not really well thought out, and I'm not getting the supervision that I think that I should. Like, I'm, I'm making a lot of decisions that I'm uncomfortable with. I don't really know if this is how research works. And it ends up being a huge sink of your time. I mean, more than anything, I remember when in my internship and in, in my medical school days, I spent a lot of time on the weekends and nights working on, a, on research projects that didn't go anywhere. And that's at that age, I value time at that age as being sort of a three to one as time at 50 years old, right? So three hours of your time at 50 years old is worth one hour of your time at you know, 19 or 20 because... Yeah. Let's have this conversation again. Yeah, Adam. Adam's old. Oh, come on! I'm not fifty. <laughs> yeah, but um, you're closer to it. I, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at it's easy to fall into a trap where you have a project or a supervisor that doesn't actually work for you. But you're because it's so hard to find a project mm. in Australia because people are so uneducated about this field. You just walk into anything and say, "Yeah, I'll do it," and then you know. You find but it stems from the fact that it's very difficult when you're in that position as a junior to say no. Mm. Someone Absolutely. asks you to do something, and you don't want to be. The resident that goes, no, I think that's a stupid idea. So, you know, how do you how do you deal with someone asking you to do something and then you don't want to come across as being destructive and arrogant? Yeah. So I think you two are guys who ask people to do stuff. So, I mean, if you, uh, how would you find someone who? What tips would you give to someone who was looking at you guys and saying, all right, and Nitesh has asked me to work on this project. What are some of the things I should think about? I mean, from my point of view, I think about like. One of the most important things, do I have the time that Natasha or Adam is asking me for right now? So you guys might come up and say, hey, I want you to work on a really big project. And, you know, it sounds great. It's going to get published in some big journal. But I'm working full time as an intern or a resident. I only have, you know, four or five hours a week max. And you're really asking me for almost a full time position to mm-hmm. commit to this. If you can't complete the project, it's no good to you, even if it's the best project in the world. Well, I think you need to be, you need to be realistic about that because... You will actually do a lot worse if you agree to something and can't deliver mm. than if you than if you do a overpromise and underpromise. So I think that that's the first thing to do is if someone does ask you for it, really balance up whether or not you have the time to deliver what they want. And I think tied to that is the skills. I think it's always good to ask the supervisor, what skills do I need or what knowledge do I need? To work on this project, Adam, you're pulling some long faces here. I, I, I guess, yeah. Well, I guess you've got two questions here. You got you, your first question is how did I, how do I define what's a good project? Second mm. question is then how do I define what's a good supervisor? And mm. both of those are not synonymous terms. You can have good supervisors, bad projects, and vice versa. Mm. So, choosing the supervisor is actually probably easier from a junior point of view than choosing the project. I think there are some um, objective measures there. That yeah, are so to I know you're playing a face there, but mm. the, the project itself, I, I cannot think, uh, even now, when I'm designing my own projects now, uh, sometimes I'm really questioning whether that project has merit and whether it's worth the effort putting into it. Um, you're, all, you, you're always in danger of being usurped by somebody else around the world, so even if you've got a great idea. So, you know, there's... Projects are difficult. Projects are difficult, and especially if you're junior in your career, I can understand how that is exceptionally difficult. 
choosing a supervisor, though, I think is a different question. Uh, and I think you're right, track record. Yeah, I think it, it, it is track record that is often what I would look to. And this is retrospective, you know, 15 years down the line. I don't think I did this when I was a junior. But Can I pause you there? So yeah. for me, junior guy, don't know what I'm talking about, track record. What are the things that are constituting sure. track record? So the, you know, p- recommendations from your peers, people who have had similar experiences, similar successful experiences with the same, pro- uh, the same supervisor, that is a great way of finding somebody who's going to mentor you and guide you through your research. You can search on metrics like PubMed, Google, or some form of electronic resource. It's not the be-all and end-all, because there can be some people who are very junior in their career who may not have the publications behind them, but are willing to put in the effort to supervision. So, Is there anything you can tell about where they are on the publication, where the publication's published, how regularly they're published, that... You know, instead of like looking for, all right, does this guy have 400 publications? Maybe he's got 30, but maybe is it... Probably probably not, to be honest. Some people who have a lot of publications misuse their staff to get there. Mm. Um, And people who have few publications can be very good at mentoring. So I I would be very cautious about using one metric to gauge your supervisor's likely chance of success. I do think what Rahul's pointing, though, is one of the factors is the first and last person on a publication are what people in the academic world look at as being the most significant contributors to the paper. And, and for good reason, from my own experience, the first and last people, sometimes the second, are the ones who have literally done most of the work. And honestly, most of the time you'd be surprised if the people in the middle had even read the paper, at least in the medical world. That's true. Uh, fair point. But go on with the supervisor mm-hmm. choice, please. No, no, no. But I think, I think that, that, that was a, what I looked towards. So peer mm. recommendation... Try and do your research about what their productivity is. Uh, be cautious about overproductive supervisors. Nobody can write... 20 papers a year. Yeah, well, well I think that, yeah, you can write 20 papers a year. Nobody can write 60 papers a year, probably. Um, so there you know, has to be a bit of balance on that. Um, but also, if it's somebody who's engaging with you, um, somebody who's clearly yeah, I was gonna say relates that, to you. I was going to say that personal aspect, I think, is something that gets... It, it, I find meeting someone you actually click with and someone who has taken an interest in you and you don't feel awkward or weird or you know, suppressed around is actually really important because you're going to be working with this person for a whole year or more. Teamwork is critical. Research mm. cannot be done by one individual. I, myself and Adam, we only met each other about 12 months ago or thereabouts. In the last 12 months, we produced 15 or 16 papers only because we work so well together. And the finding someone who is... Uh, you can work very well with will actually boost your productivity significantly. Yeah. So I think those are all really good pointers with supervisors. So you got the personal aspect where, you know, you find someone you actually click with. You got the looking at their track record, working out whether they were big contributors to that paper, speaking to people who had worked with them before and seeing if they had a good mentorship relationship and felt supported. I think those are all really important. What about project wise? I mean I, I know that, you know, the first project I ever worked on was a psychiatry, uh, it was a schizophrenic aggression project. Now, look, I, 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 I've heard about yeah, this project, yeah, but I think, you, I think your um, listeners need to hear about it. Yeah, so yeah. I was, uh, without naming names, drafted by a psychiatrist who perhaps didn't have that much experience in research. To he had, But over time, he had saved up maybe 2,000 pieces of paper that he had, <laughs> <laughs> I was already garnering last, where he had rated every schizophrenic patient who had come to the ward on his own aggression scale that he had totally made up out of nowhere and had no basis in anything. 
And he handed me the stack of 2,000 pieces of paper like they were his child. And, so, and it was actually a friend of mine as well, Davor, who also runs the podcast. This was not the patient. This was the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist. He saved 2,000 pieces of patient paper. Okay. And he said, enter all of these into an Excel spreadsheet. It reminds we'll me of a joke about a psychiatrist, but I'll not say it. Publish it somewhere. Anyway, the point was that Davor and I got through about 400 of these and then realized that this was never going to go anywhere. So essentially, I think it's a good idea to understand, first of all, what your supervisor thinks is the goal of the project. What are some of the relevant papers that have been published in the past that sort of have shaped his idea or her idea to get here? Um, and, you know, what they want to get out of it at the end of this. And all of that shows that you're interested in the project. And it also means that you get to do your background research check on the project, make sure that it's something that has legs, something that is a good idea and has been born of, you know, a, a good thought process as opposed to something that was sort of like this psychiatry project just kind of came out of someone's mind out of, out of nowhere. Um, would you guys agree that that's... I mean, if you had a trainee who came up to you and said, look, I just want to read more about this. I want to know what the relevant papers are that have been published recently or anything that I can know more about it. Would that strike you as arrogant or would that strike you as you know an interested person? Um, I don't think it would strike me as arrogant. I think there's a fine balance to be had. Mm. Um, I'd be very encouraged that somebody was taking an interest in the project. Um, uh, uh, so, no, I don't think it would... Dis- strike me as arrogant so I, I do think there, 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 there's a balance to be had here that you know there is a lot of people with very significant experience in supervision that you know you have to be very um, not necessarily grateful to work with but there is there is some senior clinicians right who are expert researchers and will not give you dud projects and if you are lucky enough to work with one of those individuals you must you make sure it. you well not necessarily take it i think you know showing interest is fine but you know don't be arrogant to the point of rebutting i think it all comes down to phrasing if you say hey i just really want to so for my own benefit, I want to know more about this paper and where we're going. I, I would love to know the background of the papers that That's I can fine. read. I think supervision is like teaching. You have people who are good at teaching that are able to get the point across and are able to support you and get you through it if you don't understand it. And there are those that just cannot do it at all. It's a similar analogy. Yeah, I think it's very similar. Okay. So I think, um, you know, in terms of selecting a project, one of the other things we haven't talked about is picking something that interests you. And just very briefly, I want to touch on this. I worked on a lot of projects, like I said, in psychiatry that you know, I was never really that interested in. And it's easy to do that because a consultant comes along and says, you'll get some papers out of this, you'll get whatever out of this. It is important to realize that if you're not intrinsically interested in something, you have like you know you have no interest in it, be wary of signing up for a project like that because you, know, Absolutely. you probably Absolutely. won't put 100% effort in and you'll end up disappointing yourself probably the supervisor as well. Um, it'll just be a waste of your time overall. At the same time, don't sell yourself too short. You don't want to review something if you're not, you haven't experienced working in that field mm. yet. And as I said, research allows you to read more about the field, learn more about the field, and maybe you will actually start liking that. So we contradicted ourselves there. But <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. The point is, if you have an absolute aversion to something and you're only doing it to get the paper, to get the resume thing, be wary of that situation. Well, I, I think, think most of us, when we, although maybe we said we went into research for different reasons, each one of us, well, myself and the test particularly, we were going into research in cardiology. Mm. And this was not research into psychiatry when mm. we wanted to be cardiologists. This is slightly different. And this is particularly why I deferred my research to a point in my career that I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. It's fairly 
experience, you know, I was fairly expected that I was going to do research. I was pretty committed to doing a PhD at some point in medical training. But when I was young, I was undifferentiated. I thought I might want to do renal. I thought I might want to do emergency medicine. Ended up I wanted to do cardiology. So postponing it to a point where I was a cardiologist made more sense. So yes, okay, we're doing it to a box-ticking exercise, but it's a box-ticking exercise within your subspecialty yeah. interest. And a lot of people don't know what they want to do at this age, and that's fine. I think yeah, it's fine. You know, from another perspective, as long as it's something you could get interested in and learn the process from. A lot of research, would you guys agree, is about process, about learning. Sure. Like, it's about what learning the, the skill sets, about learning about mm. how do you search for something, how do you write, how do you and how do you even manage a database? That's actually an incredibly that hard is, thing to do. All of these things have been, can be passed off in like 0.5 of a second, but they are each one is a whole you know couple of months of learning in it itself. Takes, it takes a while to become good, and once you're good at those basics, you're the rest of the research actually comes everything flows yeah it's a process it's a bit like riding a bike you know once you've done it then you can ride a lot of different bikes but Mm. you have to learn how to ride your first bike correct you need the basic principles you need the Mm. foundations but just for the box tickers out there because we're obviously not looking at this as a box ticking thing anymore for those who want a box tick there's nothing wrong with that tick the box but you need to establish you need to ensure that your box will be ticked <laughs> without being without getting sexual. into double entendres. Yeah, um, no. So what I mean by that is when you're looking someone... for someone to tick your box. <laughs> <laughs> Rahul knows a lot of good areas. No, so if you want, if you're going to engage in research and you want to improve your CV, it's a very important thing at the very beginning to establish what what the authorship string may be, because there is the danger sometimes that you will help. Do a lot of research, like Rahul has done in his own experience and stuff that I've done as well. Where suddenly you thought, "I'm going to be first author on this," and you are either a midstream author or you are not, not even included. All so too often, it is very, very important that that is established. And if you say outright, "I want to be able to," I want this to improve my CV. I want an abstract out of this. It also allows a supervisor to know what your interests are, what your goals are, and they can define a project for you to meet your standards. So just to summarize that, I think it's important to look at your supervisor, speak to anyone who might have worked with them before, check out their track record real quick, see if they've got a good plan and project going. And then to check out the project itself, is it something you're interested in? Read around the topic and see if there are any papers relevant that you can get to understand the topic a bit more. And don't be afraid to say no. Yeah, don't be afraid to say no. Don't be arrogant, but don't be afraid to say no. And... um, Lastly, to think about you know setting up some expectations with supervisors. Again, do not be arrogant to some of these guys because that would be a turn off. But just to ask, like, look, here are the, on your behalf, here are the skills I actually have. And I hope these meet the skills that you need for the project. There's nothing worse than getting halfway through and realizing you don't know how to do what they're mm-hmm. asking you to do. And two, what can I expect to get for, let's say I'm putting 200 hours in, you want to be somewhere on the authorship string at the very least. you know. And it's, it sounds brutal, but you know, it's 200 hours of your time as a young guy. It's not... It's not too much to say. You're working for free to say, hey, look, I'd like to get something out of this. So, look, overall, I think we've covered a little bit about, you know, the theoretical side of why research is good, but also a bit about, you know, how you can go about picking up a project and picking up, getting into research in a way that suits you and has effective results for you. So, you know, just closing up, Adam, Tesh, do you have anything else you might want to add about? Like it or not, research has now become very much a standard part of all clinicians, anyone in the health sciences have to engage in research, whether it's reading research papers, whether it is doing the research itself. It's important that you develop the skill set as early as possible. It'll help you later in life. doesn't mean you have to be an academic clinician for the rest of your life, but having some of those basic skills will definitely benefit and aid you. Mm. Adam, any thoughts to add in a final conclusion? Yeah, I would echo that. I think you can actually tell those clinicians who have done research 
in the way that they hold themselves, the, the way that they appraise the data, the way that they present themselves um, locally and internationally. I think that, um, um, you know, for the Australian context, when we're just talking about Australia, I think research will become increasingly important. Um, if we look at models within the US and Europe, there is much more partnerships between industry, universities and hospitals. As you can see, that is the future within the Australian framework as well. So if you're looking to future-proof yourself, to some extent, research provides one avenue in that. And most people don't think about that when mm. they're you know, just trying to get on the programme. But it's not just about trying to get on the programme, it's about having the consultancy job at the end yeah. of the programme. It's just a short term. Mm. You know, you can talk about short-term box-ticking, but we also have to think about long-term. And, you know, most of us very few doctors think about the long term when they sort of sign up to what they're going to do so um, but you know in Australia I can see there's a lot of government funding coming into research if you look at the Monash uh, campus moving forward there's a, an increasing partnership between the university the the, the the hospital itself they want to start a biotech um, area around Clayton uh, and you can see how do, how do you position yourself as a clinician to capitalise on that, well, probably research. Yeah. Um, so I think from my point of view as the junior perspective here, I think, um, yep, ticks the box, but think about, you know, where what's going to be most interesting in your life ongoing. And it allows you, you um, I'm, a, I'm a classic example of that, it allows you to transcend where you were trained. Yeah, that's definitely. You know, and I, I, I don't know why I was offered a job here. I cannot tell you, but um, a lot of people get offered jobs for their research potential, mm. um, and that is not set within your local geography. And, and if, an example from my side, you know, I was offered a job outside my training, which is in business, and outside my geography, which is in you know, twenty thousand kilometers away in Boston. So I think. It, Doors open when you do research, both in, internally in terms of your curiosity and your, your own exploration of the world, and in terms of your career. And, and, mm. and don't think only towards getting onto that specialty training program, because from what I can see, and again, I'm not on mine, but it's only the first step in a very so, long yeah, life. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Hope you guys enjoy this. Remember to get on Facebook and give us a rating. A couple of you guys have given us five stars lately, and we've appreciate that because we don't really do a lot of work to promote the podcast as you guys know but um uh, no look it's, it feels good why the hell are we on this you guys will be celebrities one day don't worry <laughs> all right catch you later guys bye thanks